Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. In our continued History 102 lecture series, we're doing the Ottoman Turks from heir of Rome and Caliphate to the sick man of Europe. So the Ottoman Turks, in our world map, that's where we're talking. We're talking the Eastern Mediterranean through to the edges of Persia slash Iran down into North Africa. And in 1071, with the Battle of Manzikert, Turkish nomadic armies led by the Seljuk Turks, Seljuk tribe, crossed into Byzantine Anatolia. The Turks had previously taken over the Abbasid Caliphate, and they needed to defeat the Byzantines in order to secure the Arab Middle East. So there, were, there was a series of um, Arab civil wars. The caliphate brought in Turkish, nomadic Turkish troops from Asia Minor in order to be tough guys and win. And what the Turks did was win and then looked at their Arab paymasters and went, like, kind of like the Terminator or the Matrix, kind of looked at them and went, why am I working for you? Why don't I just take over? And one of the problems is that that's an insecure throne, right? You're, you're a Turkish minority in charge of this giant Arab majority and here comes and on the border are these byzantines these greek roman byzantines and so the idea was you whack the byzantines and then you could really take over the middle east um and then turn your your attention really on the last arab kingdom which was egypt so they cross over the mountains they go to fight the byzantines and the byzantines look to defeat them they thought oh we can convert these turks this isn't a problem we could turn them into anti-Arab Christian nomads. Like, they're not really Muslim. And the Turks would tell you that. They, they were polytheists. They just became Muslim in order to get hired. And, you know, by the caliphate, by the Arab caliphate, by the Abbasids. So they're like a folk Islam. Like, they're, they're Islam, but they could be persuaded to other things. And the Byzantines think, we can do that. All we have to do is whack them, defeat them in a battle... Boom. We can convert them. We can make them into Romans. We can make them into Byzantines. Done. So that's the Battle of Manzikert. And what happens is the Turks win. You have a Seljuk victory. Byzantine Anatolia becomes Turkey as Turks begin to move in. See, the problem with the Middle East, the problem for the Turks is it doesn't look like home. It doesn't look like Central Asia at all. Anatolia does. And so rather than stay in the Middle East, in, in Arabia and Iraq, why not just go into the, why not move into Anatolia? Now, there's Greek Romans, there's the Byzantines live in there, but you know, you just walk in and you squat down and you say, why don't you leave? And they do. So the Greeks move to Constantinople, the coasts, Greece, the Turks are going to stay Islamic because why would you convert? That's silly. And so Anatolia becomes part of Asia again. And not Europe. It had been part of Asia during the Persian Empire. It went back to Europe. It became part of Europe for the uh, Alexander, Greek, Hellenistic, and then Roman empires. And now it's kind of being sucked back into a Asiatic Middle Eastern kingdom. Rather than look at Europe, it's looking towards the Euphrates. And so we get this churn of a whole new place, a place that was Greek 
Greek-speaking, Christian, urban becomes rural, Islamic, and Turkish. And today we call it Turkey. In 1204, it gets worse for the Byzantines. The Fourth Crusade, a bunch of Christians, a bunch of Catholics, sack Constantinople. Now, Constantinople, the Byzantines were Orthodox. And between 1100 and 1204, increasingly the Catholics and Orthodox start to hate each other. And that culminates in 1204 where the Catholic Crusader army that was supposed to go and help Jerusalem instead sacks Constantinople. And this is effectively the end of Byzantine wealth. The Catholics basically liquidate anything that's gold, silver, that's worth anything. They turn it all into coins and ship it back to Europe. The Seljuk Turks, on the other hand, now look like the natural successors. They quickly take over kind of the rest of Byzantine lands, for the most part, in Anatolia, but there's problems. The first is the walls of Constantinople, and if you're looking at the, at the video, you could see these massive walls. The walls of Constantinople are impenetrable. They were built by Theodosius. They were built by the Romans to defend Constantinople against a Roman siege. And you have to understand, the Romans could conquer any city. So this is like if the guys in Ocean Eleven built a casino safe to keep out the guys of Ocean's Twelve. That's what we're talking about. And so they're impenetrable. You cannot get through these walls. The Huns couldn't do it. The Goths couldn't do it. The Visigoths couldn't do it. The Alans couldn't do it. The Umayyads couldn't do it. Like, people after people walk up to these walls, look at them and go, I don't know what to do with this. And they leave. Or they're defeated, they're thrown back. So even the Cedric Turks, owning most of Anatolia, look at the Constantinople walls and go, I don't know what we're going to do with that. I mean, we want the capture of the city, but we can't. And then the Mongols arrive. The Mongols come through the Middle East, burning everything. And they, they basically, the Arabs or the Persians are like, you think we're tough? Take a look at the, at the Turks. And the Turks turn around. They've been looking at the Byzantines. They turn around and go, hey, hey, you're messing our stuff up in the Middle East. And the Mongols are like, oh, yeah? And they cross over the mountains. And in 1241, at Kosadag, the Sejuks are eliminated, liquidated, murdered to the last person. The Mongols obliterate them. The Sejuk kingdom is broken apart along tribal lines. Like, all the different tribes are like, we don't have to listen to you anymore. You're dead. And the Mongols are just a sledgehammer. They hammer Anatolia, they break it into about 12 different kingdoms, and then they leave. They don't care. They got to go sack Baghdad in 1258. They got to go make Persia and, you know, create Tamerlane. Like, they're just a sledgehammer in Anatolia. So they destroy the Seljuk Turks, saving the Byzantine Empire, of all things. The Byzantines are like, are you Christian? And the Mongols are like, uh, I've heard of Jesus, and he's one of our guys, but it's okay. We're not really friends of you either. You're just so weak, we don't even need to conquer you. And they're like, okay. Because remember, one, tr- one part of the Mongol army is across on the other side of the Black Sea, burning down Kiev and attacking Moscow. So 
the Mongols were perfectly happy attacking Orthodox Christians. So this leads to a question. As the Mongols start to turn and fight each other, who's going to control Anatolia? Will the Byzantine Empire save itself, convert the Turks to Christianity, absorb them as Roman citizens, and recreate Justinian's kingdom? Romans Natio? The concept that anybody, 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 anybody can be a Roman? Plus Constantinople's clear awesomeness says yes. Byzantium can survive. They've done it before. They can come back. They've done it before. They can recreate the Roman Empire. They've done it before. Don't count the Byzantines out. But the world is changing. There's war with Christians in Southeastern Europe, and that's taking on most of their time. Time they needed to absorb the Turks, to defeat the Turks and absorb them into an empire, they spent having to fight the Serbs and the Bulgarians. Two, problematically, the Silk Road money is drying up. It's harder to pay for culture and armies. The Ming are turning inward, right? The, the cities of Central Asia are being obliterated. In the, in the Mongolian civil wars. Then there's the Black Death, which is, devastates the urban areas, including Constantinople. It's like every time Constantinople is about to recreate the Roman Empire or has a chance to create the Roman Empire, it gets hit with a giant plague and 25 or 30% of their population dies. So Byzantine cities in Constantinople are devastated, which takes away the money, it takes away the urban revenue, it takes away manpower from the army. And then there are two Byzantine civil wars. So legitimacy is a mess. Unlike the age of, of Basil, the Bulgar slayer, who for 30 years could march his armies wherever he wanted, knowing that the government worked for him, knowing that the new, new nobility was loyal to him and his dynasty, and he could crush the Serbs and then turn around and crush the Bulgars and then turn around and smash the Arabs. Instead, Byzantine families keep fighting with each other, never quite solving the succession problem that plagued the Roman Empire after Augustus. So how do we get the Ottoman Turks? Because Turkey is not going to be the Seljuk Turks. The winner of all of this will be the Ottoman. Well, they make use of Turkish plus Greek plus Christian labor and knowledge. They are also willing to hire Arabs fleeing the Mongols. They, surprisingly, do Roman natio better than the Byzantines do. They have an openness to new ideas, innovations, success. They know they aren't the smartest people around. They know they aren't the most advanced technologically. So what are they going to do? They are perfectly willing to absorb the way the Mongols are, the way the Chin, the Manchus are. They're willing to hire other people into their empire. They're going to take over the Anatolian trade routes to Europe. That, e that brings in money. It, and it, more importantly, robs Constantinople. It robs the Byzantines of income. P plus, remember those two Byzantine civil wars? Well, what will happen is one side or the other will invite the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, to be part of it. To be the kingmaker. So every time somebody wins, they make peace. They have peace with Constantinople while everyone else is fighting. So they could turn around and whack or absorb other Turkish tribes, knowing that Constantinople is not going to attack them. 
And then what they do is cross over into Europe. To really destroy the Byzantines, they cross over into Europe, smash the Serbians, hang a right, smash the Bulgarians, and start surrounding Constantinople from the west. This is where we get Transylvania, the, the story of Count Vlad, right? The story of Dracula. This, this is right here. The Turks have cro- the Ottoman Turks have crossed into Europe and are smashing people that the Byzantines couldn't smash. Problems. Back to the walls of Constantinople. They're impenetrable. Second, the Arab caliphates in Egypt and what's left of Baghdad equal, quote, the leader of Islam, right? The Arabs are the chosen people in Islam. While everybody can convert in a kind of Roman Nashia way, eh, Muhammad was an Arab and the Arabs still feel they should be the real leaders. The problem is, is the Mongols have abused them. But... Egypt's still out there. The Mongols never conquered Egypt. And, you know, Baghdad might recover. So there's a competition there. You have to, if you're the Turks, if you're the Ottoman Turks, you have to deal with them. And three, then there's the Catholic kingdoms, especially Hungary, but north of them, Germany, in Central Europe. And what the Turks inherit is the traditional Byzantine problem of fighting on two fronts. They're constantly fighting in Europe and in the Middle East. What is the solution? Turns out it's new technology. It's gunpowder. It's cannon and musketry. The Turks are excellent horse archers. Not as good as the Mongols, obviously, but very good horse archers. So why use cannon, which are slow, or muskets, which you have to be on foot to use? Early muskets are way too heavy, way too imbalanced, way too fragile to use on horseback. So you have to get off your horses to use them. Why would Turks do that? Also, you're going to have to modernize the Byzantine and Arab university systems to learn engineering, chemistry, metallurgy, physics, architecture. You have to teach much more than religion in order for gunpowder to matter. You have to make the guns. Right? You have to deal with physics. You have to make gunpowder. You have to deal with metallurgy. You have to deal with engineering. You have to deal with architecture because you have to make buildings, furnaces. You have to learn how to build things that can defend against gunpowder. And so what they're willing to do is combine Turkish, European, Arab, Persian, Mongolian, Indian, and Chinese knowledge into a liberal education if you're watching the video, look at what they did. They built the, Hungar- the, the Constantinople guns. There was 50 of them, I think. There's these massive guns that could throw basically a Volkswagen at Constantinople. And who built them? A Hungarian smith, a European. Who actually had been working for the Byzantines, but the Byzantines couldn't pay him. So he left and he went to the Turks and said, hey, can uh, I've got some guns. Want them? And the Turks said, yeah, we'll buy your guns, and how about we hire you to make more guns? And he said, sure. Let's negotiate on the price. The Turks were willing to absorb all of these ideas. So they're very liberal in order to win. They're willing to change. The second thing is Janissaries. They will add Janissaries to their troops. Now, the Janissaries... Remember, 
Turks are excellent horse archers. They're nomads who are now starting to settle down, but they don't give up their horse archer ability. Why? Because they're good at it. So what do they do? They, they get Christian youth. Originally, they'll be slaves. Later on, they'll be slaves, quote unquote. They'll be hired, but and they become a caste. Ultimately, they become a self-perpetuating group. But the idea is they're Christians who are brought into the army in order to fight other Christians. Why? Because going back to the Greeks, the Greeks and the Gauls, Europeans have heavy infantry. Europeans fight on foot. They might fight in, on horseback a little bit too, but there's big forests, lots of mountains. Europeans fight with spear in a hand or a sword in a hand and a shield. And what that can do is you just make a box. And the guys on horses, you put up your shields, the guys on horses can't do anything about it. So if you want to defeat an infantry, you need another infantry. The Turks don't know how to fight as an infantry. Why would they? They would be worse at it. So what they do is they get an infantry of Europeans to fight other Europeans. And what they are willing to do is make them gunpowder troops. That's technology. That's education. That's discipline. There is no one else in Europe as good as the Janissaries. There might be no one else in the world as good as the Janissaries. Because to, to reload the guns means you're vulnerable. So what do you do? You have to have other gunpowder troops fight in what is a salvo, in a moving, constant fighting. You have to group up your men so you could shoot all together because guns are so inaccurate at this point. You're not going to hit anything. There are no marksmen because there's no rifling. And so the only way to hit anything is to put 10, 10 guns in a row. This is why I, students will look at old movies like The Patriot, and they're like, why do they all line up in a row? I'm like, Because the guns are so inaccurate, the only way to hit anything is to line them up in a row. Does that make them vulnerable to cannon? Yeah. But if you spread them out, they won't hit anything. So it's, it's the limitation of the technology. But you need education, because this, this is all high tech. This is all high tech. This is the drone warfare of its day. You can't put any idiot and say, okay, now pilot a drone. You've got to know what you're doing. So you need an education and discipline. These troops have to work together. And there's just nobody else like them. The Byzantines don't have anybody else like them. The Slavs don't have anybody. And the, the Arabs certainly don't. The closest might be Tamerlane's troops. Might be. And but he dies. So once he dies, it kind of falls apart. So the the Janissaries are the best troops, which means they become privileged and elite because the Turkish Sultan doesn't always have the money to pay them. And so he goes, well, how about I give you some rights? How about I give you some privileges instead of pay? And if you're smart, you go, yeah, OK. And so they become politically and economically important. In fact, they replaced the Turks as the best troops in the army. This is kind of what happened to the Persians. If you took my 101 course, the Persians after the Peloponnesian War start hiring Greek mercenaries to fill out their infantry, to be a phalanx. Those troops became the best troops in the Persian army. That will be that's politically problematic if your best troops are not you or mercenaries or foreigners 
who are given rights, who are given privileges. That's what's going to happen at the end of the Roman Empire. They will hire Goths and Germans into the, into the army, which means the Goths and Germans learned how to be Roman, ar- Roman soldiers without having to become Roman. That became very politically dangerous in the 400s. Why change? Well, one, you have to beat the Slav- you have to beat the Slavs in Europe. You know the Persia, the um, Bulgarians, and the Serbs, right? So they get smashed. Then they turn around with these new Janissaries, smash the Arabs. But there's one thing left, and that's Constantinople. And in 1453, they lay siege to it with their new guns, their super technology. Remember. The walls of Constantinople were built to keep out a Roman army, not cannon, which hadn't been invented. And so the guns start to batter the walls. 5,000 shots, some 28 tons of gunpowder. Why does that matter? Because 28 tons of gunpowder had to be manufactured. Tons of gunpowder, which means you needed chemists You needed factories. You needed workers. You needed transportation able to carry 28 tons. You needed the shots. You needed 5,000 bullets to shoot. But for all of that modern technology, it was that a gate was left open during a counterattack. A counterattack went out. It was pushed back. They retreated, and they left open a gate and allowed Ottoman troops, including the Janissaries, to pour in. Constantinople is wrecked. It's sacked for three days. But Mahomet II turns Constantinople into Istanbul. And he makes it the only Islamic capital. He makes it an Islamic capital greater than Cairo or Baghdad. But he also, it is also, Istanbul is the only major Islamic capital built on a Christian capital foundation. In Tunisia, we have Tunis. Not Carthage. Carthage existed. They don't use Carthage. They build Tunis. In Egypt, they build Cairo. They don't use Alexandria, the Greek city. In the Middle East, it's Baghdad, not Ctesiphon. The only major capital, Islamic capital, that is a converted Christian capital, is Istanbul. To do that, they will hire the best and the brightest. Arabs, Persians, Africans, Christians. Istanbul will become the leading cultural city of the Islamic world. The Urals call it the Grand Port. They're impressed by it. You go there and you're blown away. You're like, wow, you guys have made this way better than the Byzantines did. Well, of course, because the Byzantines were poor after 1204. They reconnect Constantinople to the Silk Road. That brings in money. Boom. It becomes a major trade hub again. The Ottomans connect southeastern Europe to the Middle East to Africa. It is a recreation of, the, of Justinian's empire in a lot of ways. It goes from the Danube to the Euphrates to the Nile. The, turns out the successor to the Romans are the Turks. Well, the successor to the Romans are the Byzantines, and the successor to the Byzantines are the Turks, and the Turks recreate this world. It's Islamic. It's Turkish. It's not European. But it is a Roman world. 
It, on the map, it looks like the Roman maps. In trade, it looks like the Roman world again. That brings us to Suleiman the Magnificent. From 1520 to 1566, this is the height of Turkish power. Could he conquer the world? He might. He conquered the Middle, they conquered the Middle East. They conquered Southeastern Europe. They conquered Constantinople. They conquered the major Islamic capitals. Now all that stands in the way is basically Germany, is Vienna, is the Holy Roman Empire, maybe France. And the French are kind of willing to work with the Turks at this point. So he, he's already, he could reach. He could conquer Europe. He's got the power. He's got Roman Nascio on his side. He's willing to bring in people and convert them to, to, to make them Turkish, to bring them into, if not make them Turkish, at least make them into, the Tur into Turkish workers. You know, he's willing to bring them in. He could, his, his reign combines military power with political authority with a cultural golden age. The top copy palace is poetry and mosaics and dance and architecture and debate. It is Versailles, but 150 years earlier. It is the best minds of the Eastern Mediterranean, of the European, African, Middle Eastern worlds. He had cannon, disciplined gunpowder troops. The Europeans still don't. In 1526, he invades Hungary. He goes up the marches up the Danube, invades Hungary, and at Mohacs, crushes the Hungarian state. Crushes it in one day. Absolutely obliterates the Hungarian ruling class in one battle and absorbs Hungary, the largest Catholic state in Eastern Europe. In 1529, he continues up the Danube and lays siege to Vienna, the capital of Germany. Now, he fails in capturing Vienna, but he came close. It was the rains. One explanation is the rains. It, was too, the rain, it rained too much. In 1529, he had to leave most of his big heavy guns behind. He didn't, in the end, have enough firepower to break in to Vienna. Vienna was just a little too far for his logistics. But he's also able to push the Portuguese back in the Indian Ocean. The only guy in this course who is going to have a series of naval victories against Europeans after 1500. And he contemplates invading Italy. Now, his successors will fight and lose the Battle of Lepanto off the coast of Greece between Greece and Italy. And that ends that hope of re reuniting what they called Rum, of recreating Justinian's empire by conquering North, North, Western North Africa, Spain, and Italy. But that's after him. Could he have done it? Maybe. Possibly. So what happens? Why don't the Turks conquer the world? They, they certainly look good. 1571 is a minor setback. It destroys the Turkish fleet, but they'll build another one in the Mediterranean. So why don't the Turks conquer the world? Why does it collapse? Well, partly it's bad timing. They conquered Constantinople too late. They needed cannon to conquer Constantinople, but it happened to be just as the Silk Road w was dying. Just as Tamerlane was destroying it, just as the Ming were turning into isolation and they're building their Great Wall, 
just as the Silk Road was was closing down. That was less trade equal less money, which equals less education and less technology. The second is, look at these dates. They're in the 1500s. The Europeans are set, setting out to trade with India and China by sea. They're going around the Turks. And to a lesser extent, the Italians. They're going around. They're finding a way around the Turks. They know what the Turks are doing. The, the Turkish the trade coming through on the Silk Road from India and China has to go through the Turkish Empire. Has to go through the Ottoman Empire, which means they get to charge the sales tax, which means they're taking that money and they're building janissaries, they're building fleets, they're building the, they're using European money to build armies and navies that will conquer the Europeans. The Europeans aren't dumb, and they start to try to find a way to go around. Now, good rulers can compensate for this. They can make do with less. All right, there's less money. That's okay. You have to be efficient, right? You have better technology. You, you have to have better investments. Good rulers, a Suleiman can handle this problem. And if you're watching the video, I'm going to show you two maps. This is the trade routes that go from eastern China, eastern Asia, across the steppe into the Middle East, across the Tarsus Mountains to Constantinople. That is a trade route that goes back to around the turn of the AD BC time to about, you know, one, you know, one AD to the Han Empire, Han Dynasty. So this is a 1,500-year-old trade route. Look what happens. The Dutch trade is to North America, to South America, parts of Africa, India, and then Japan, China. It, is, it doesn't come anywhere near the Turks in the Eastern Mediterranean. It completely bypasses the Middle East. Which means the Dutch are making the money and the Turks are making nothing. So while good leaders could make do with this less money, the Ottomans get a series of bad rulers. They get 13 bad rulers in a row. Less money equaled the opposite of efficiency. It equaled decadence. These bad rulers looked at the less money and said, well, I want to spend it on me. And so you get less authority. You get less unity. Why? Because they're bad rulers who care about themselves. So they actually stop ruling. The sultans go into their sex harem palace and don't come out. They spend more time murdering their brothers than trying to conquer Europe. They're spending the money on themselves. So who's ruling in their stead? The grand viziers. Jafar from Aladdin. They run the show, but they're not of the royal family. So they don't have the same objective concerns as the sultan. Some are very good. Many are selfish. Most want to help their family more than they want to help the empire. See, for the sultans, the empire and their family are the same thing. Helping one is to help the other. The grand viziers have a job. And so when given choices like, who's going to be your generals? Do you choose the best? Of which some of them might be rivals who want your job? Or do you choose your cousin? 
Ed. You know, who's nice? So the Grand Viziers, who's going to get these best jobs? Who's going to get the governorships? Who's, who are they going to pick? They're going to pick people who are loyal, people who will help them. That's not necessarily the best and the brightest. Okay, well, all right, we have less money and we have bad rulers. All right, well, at least the Janissaries can hold the fort, defend the borders, and keep the empire together, right? <gasps> no. The Janissaries become conservative in order to protect their privileges. They are the best troops in the Turkish army, and their way of staying the best troops in the Turkish army is not to innovate. It's to make sure no other groups can outbest them. Now, we see this in other armies. This is part of the military revolution. What the Janissaries want to stop is the military revolution from happening in the Ottoman Turkish Empire. We see this in the, the army of Peter the Great. He has to murder his Streltsy. He has to build a new army to murder his old army. Which is kind of crazy, but he had to do that because they want to protect their privileges. So the Janissaries stop going off the war. If there's a rebellion in the Arabian Peninsula, they ain't going. They're like, that's 2,000 miles away. We have to stay here in Constantinople. We have to protect our privileges. So send somebody else. Well, whoever that is, is going to be worse troops. So how well do they put down that rebellion far away? What if Egypt rebels? What if the Europeans show up in Egypt? That's going to be a problem. Because the Janissaries aren't going to want to go to Egypt. It's 1,800 miles away. But how good are the second, third, fourth best troops in the Turkish army going to be against Napoleon's best troops? The answer is not very good. They got crushed. So they stop going off to war in, in faraway places. They institute anti-modernity policies and actually do coups against those weak leaders. Remember, you have a bad leader. So what happens to a bad leader? Well, a bad leader can stay in charge if the army supports them or be murdered by, say, their brother who buys off the army, which allows them to be even more secure and do less going off the war. So, like, if I'm the younger brother of the sultan, I know the sultan will one day want to murder me. So what do I do? I go to the Janissaries and say, help me murder the sultan, my older brother, before he murders me, and I'll give you X, Y, and Z. So even good sultans and viziers are stuck. They can't change. They are literally could be murdered by their own army. Because the Janissaries aren't Turks. Remember? They're foreigners. They're mercenaries. So they're in it for themselves. Okay. But at least there's no major competitor, right? No one else is changing fast, right? So, so all right, we just need some time, right? The Ottomans can, can overcome this, right? Nope. Swedish light cannon equals a revolution in European firepower. The military revolution is creating citizen soldiers who are better. They're better armed. They're better disciplined. They're better fighters than the Janissaries are. European shipbuilding after Lepanto is also going through a revolution. Heavy cannon, larger sailing vessels. In Lepanto in 1517, uh, 1571, excuse me, 
the Turkish is def- the Turks are defeated by European naval cannon, right on galleys on what's called the gunships, right these ships that are flat and they they have a gun, a big heavy gun, maybe a couple guns on them, and they can hit from far away before the Turks can board them. Well, by eighteen hundred, Nelson's command ship, the British command ship, has a hundred guns on it. So when it turned sideways and fired at you, that was 50 guns smashing everything in front of it. The Turks can't compete with that. It's too expensive. It's too hard to sail. The Eastern Mediterranean, the winds don't work against you. You need galleys. So by 1800, the Turks are completely outgunned on the ocean. Galileo. Da Vinci, Newton, is a scientific revolution in Europe and loss of control by the church. So European thought, education, technology are all speeding up. And the printing press and the Reformation allows for the spread of literacy, knowledge, and education. So Europe is changing and getting better and getting more efficient and going and revolting and and evolving and evolving and evolving. The Europeans that Suleiman fought in 1520 are not the same Europeans that show up in 1793 in Egypt. Napoleon's troops are completely different. It is a completely different army. It's completely different technology. It's a completely different mindset. The Turks have been left behind. Once leading, once the most liberal leading culture in the world, they've been left behind. At the same time, in the East, you have the Mughals uniting India. You have the Manchus conquering China and Central Asia. You have the Russians conquering Central Asia. You have Western Europe going to the Americas and getting rich doing that. The Turks are surrounded by all of these other empires doing things. And so by 1800, unable to reform... Plus, the lack of money from overland trade equals they fall behind. Bad and decadent leaders equal unwillingness to change because they might lose. And so you get a conservatism, which makes it impossible to change. And all of this leads to defeats. By 1800, Austrian armies have marched out of Vienna, liberated Hungary, pushed into the Balkans, taken Belgrade. France and then England capture Egypt. The Turkish fleet is swept out of the Indian Ocean by the Dutch, and then the British. The survival of the Ottoman Empire is not decided by the Ottomans. It's decided in Moscow, Paris, London. And we see in the, the Ottomans' continued decline from the Grand Port to the sick man of Europe. It's seen as sad and in racist terms deserved. What do you expect? They're Muslims. They're Turks. They're not Europeans. So the writings of travelers going through it are like, this is a great, this was once a great place. Now look how terrible it is. We were once impressed by it. Now it's, it's a shithole. Let's just be honest. And so there's a humiliation in the Ottoman Empire of not being one of the big boys. They, they used to, in 1526, they were the biggest boy in the block. They're the biggest dog in the block. Everyone's scared of them. They defeated the Arabs. They beat up the Persians. They have a great navy. They have crushed Hungary. Suleiman is not Suleiman the Great. He's Suleiman the Magnificent. 
And by 1800, they're the sick man of Europe. Europeans are actually going to fight over who gets to kill the Ottomans, who gets to absorb them. The uh, Crimean War and World War I are both fought in part over who gets to divide up. What part do the Europeans get from the Ottomans? In 1920, they will actually break up the Ottoman Empire and break up even the Turkish homeland. They will even take Anatolia and break it apart and give it to different empires. The Italians, the Greeks, the Russians all get a piece. That's humiliating. That's weakness. They go from first to worst. Just like the Byzantines. Now the Turks will survive, unlike the Byzantines. We have a Turkish Republic today. We have a Turkish nation-state. But it is very different than the Ottoman Empire. It's willingly different. Mustafa Kemal, Ataturk, doesn't want to recreate the Ottoman Empire. He wants to create a European Republic. He wants to modernize Turkey to make it European, to make it part of Europe again, not part of the Middle East, not part of Asia. That's why Turkey will be part of NATO after, after 1945. That's why um, the Turks want to be part of the EU, and there's a lot of racism involved in why they won't be. You know, and that racism isn't just the ra modern racism. It's a kind of a historical all the way back to the Greeks. Do we include, is Asia Minor part of, is Anatolia part of, is Turkey part of Europe? It is a debate as old as Herodotus. So that's where we'll leave the Turks. This, this kind of sad ending. We'll come back to them in World War I and then in decolonization. So um, thank you. Take care. Be safe.